Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. We'll do some review from last week. We covered quite a bit of of ground last week, so it may take a few minutes to, to go over some of this. But we're still talking about the comparison between the, uh, the the natural nation of Israel and Jesus as the fulfillment of that natural nation. They represented something that was coming later on, and that something was Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at some of the comparisons, and uh, last week we talked about the the uh, fact that when Israel had gone in its infancy down into Egypt, um, Israel, who was Jacob, had been visited in the night by a vision from God, and uh, God had told him that it was okay to go down into Egypt, that it was part of his plan, that he was going to be all right. And the cause that had created this problem, this urgency for them to go into Egypt, was the fact that there was a grievous famine that had actually threatened the life of of this infant Israel, if you will, this nation, before he'd even have a chance to to be birthed. And we compared that with Jesus, who as an infant um, had received instruction, the parents had received instruction by a dream uh, at the hand of God in the night that they were to go down into Egypt to ensure the safety of the life of Jesus. And during this period of time that this was taking place when Jesus was still just a just an infant it, during that period of time that nation of Israel that natural nation was in a time of famine that land was in a famine it was a spiritual famine it was a famine of spiritual insight and a famine of spiritual understanding and so when Jesus came along it was to take care of that famine that was being experienced in the land of Israel at at that period of time. We mentioned that Israel had come up out of Egypt and was led to the foot of Mount Sinai, and it was there at the foot of Mount Sinai that Israel was first given the law of God. And then they were told by Moses what the law was and what was to be expected of them. But after they would come into the promise, after they would become that nation that God wanted them to be, they were expected to not just tell the law, they were expected to demonstrate the law, to live it, to demonstrate it. Jesus, this was the story we talked about last week, that Jesus at the age of 12 was found at the feet of the lawgivers of his day. He had gone with his parents into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, and in in somehow, some way, he got disconnected from his parents, and they searched for three days before they found him. And so they find him in the temple at the feet of these lawgivers, and they're talking about the law things pertaining to this law of God. 
And we mentioned that these religious men were related in concept to this Mount Sinai. Sinai, the name itself means jagged and full of clefts. And as we talked about these religious men, they were jagged in their spirits. They were men who were sharp and cutting with the law of God. You can read about their approach to the law of God when dealing with sinners. It was always used as a weapon to cut them, to hurt them, to beat them with. So these men were jagged in their spirit and they offered no grace or healing to the sinner. The sinner was just out of luck. There was no place, no space for the sinner. And yet at the same time, these same men who were jagged in their spirit, they were also full of clefts. These are cracks or fissures, openings, in their concepts and in their understanding of God. The greater part of their study of the law centered around ways to create loopholes in order to circumvent the true intent of the law. That's what they sought to do. How can we bend the law? How can we create a hole, a fissure in the law so that it will provide us with an opportunity to circumvent what the law actually is wanting to do? That's why Jesus had such a difficult time with the religious leaders of the day. Because they didn't want to hear what their law really was all about. And he accused them of bending it and twisting it to their own advantage. Making it say what they wanted it to say in order so that they could do what they wanted to do and still be legal in the process. And Jesus told them, you don't even know what you're about. You're of your father the devil because that's exactly what he wants to do. Twist everything around. Turn it all around. So here's Jesus at the age of 12. And he's telling them about what the law actually said. But when he began his ministry, he would be demonstrating what the kingdom of God was all about. He would demonstrate the law. Not just tell them about it. He would demonstrate it. He would show them what the law was. And one thing that you can find consistently in the Gospels, as Jesus is demonstrating not just the law, He's demonstrating what the kingdom of God is all about. And what you find in the life of Christ and His demonstration is that the kingdom of God is governed by one law. How many laws do you think are on the books in, in the United States? Federal laws, state laws, local laws. There's laws that cover every aspect of life probably multiple times over. But you know what? If we would learn to live by the one law that governs the kingdom of God... You could throw out all the other laws. You wouldn't need them. Because the law that governs the kingdom of God is the law of love. 
And if we love, if we love, you don't need anything else. You don't. That one law is all we need. And the kingdom of God is governed by that one law. Love. Just love. When Jesus was talking to the, to the man and, and talking about... He, he was asking him, you know, what does the law say about, you know, what's the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest thing going? What was it? Love. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because, you see, Jesus said everything else in the law hinges on that. Because if you love God and if you love your neighbor, you will automatically keep the rest of the law. How much simpler can it be than that? We are in the mess we're in today because we don't follow the law of the kingdom. And that's why you have to put all the other laws on the books, and that's why they fail all the time, because it's not going to work. You're dealing with the problem in the wrong way. It takes the law of the kingdom to be applied in our hearts. And that changes everything. That's what makes the difference. And that's what Jesus was demonstrating to the world. When you put the law in your heart, it changes not just you, it will change your world. Automatically, it will change your world. Thank God for that. We went on and talked about the fact of Israel being tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was to prepare Israel to be enabled to enter into the promise that God had for them. We mentioned three areas of testing that... Uh, the Scripture talks about the area of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these three areas are going to always be where the testing comes from in our lives. Because those are the areas that are always dealt with in us in temptation. The lust of the flesh is pursuit of things that appeal to the senses. And the lust of the eyes is the pursuit of things that appeal to our emotions, our feelings, our imaginations. And the pride of life is a pursuit of things that appeal to the promotions of our status above someone else. In other words, it's related to our ego. To our ego. And we all have some of that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is when it gets out of control. <clears throat> the... The nation of Israel had been tested in the wilderness in their experience through this uh, time that Moses details for us in the first five books there, from Exodus on through Deuteronomy. Those, that period of time when Israel was being tested, and they were being tested in those three areas... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, of course, they failed every time in their testing. And if we look at Jesus, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And Jesus was also tempted and tested during his time in the wilderness. 
And His testing was also in these three areas that affect all of us. The first temptation that came the way of Jesus was the one where He was tempted to make the stones turn into bread. That dealt with the lust of the flesh. Turn these stones into bread. The second testing was when he had gone up to the very high pinnacle of the temple. And the testing point was, why don't you just step off the edge and then go wherever you want to go? Because the angels will not let you fall to the ground. They will carry you wherever you need to go. This was the lust of the eyes. It was dealing with his emotions, dealing with his imagination, his feelings. He was tired. By this time, he had fasted for 40 days. Anybody that's fasted for any length of time, after a certain period of time, you get weak. And honestly, your body starts devouring itself. Literally. Because you're not feeding it, it gets its energy from somewhere, and if you don't have a lot of fat to begin with, it starts taking muscle. And your heart's a big muscle, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous to do. And here's Jesus. He's at a point. It's not necessarily that, you know, he's not just hungry. Jesus is famished. He's literally starving. And he's weak, and he has to, he's in the wilderness, in this desert place, which is a low land, and, and he's made his way to the temple, which is one of the highest points in that whole area. So he's had to go uphill, walk uphill all the way. He's worn out, he's tired, he's hot, he's hungry. And it would have been so easy for him not to have to go anywhere else, just take a step off and, and you know, and... You can be anywhere you want to be. Feelings. Our feelings. Our emotions. Those things can get us into trouble sometimes. Sometimes. Jesus didn't give in to that one either. Then the Bible tells us that He went to a mountaintop. He had to go down the mountain there and he went up and climbed another mountain but on the top of this mountain this spirit of temptation of testing came to him again told him look out all around you and see what you can see see the glory of the kingdoms of men if you'll just submit to me I'll give you all the glory. He was dealing with the pride of life, the ego. And again, Jesus didn't fall for that either. So where the nation of Israel in the wilderness had failed, Jesus comes along and in His weakest point, the absolute weakest point in the life of Jesus, He succeeds. 
Thank God that even in his weakest point, he was stronger than temptation. I wish we could say that. (laughs) We have trouble with temptation sometimes when we're at our strongest. And yet, here's Jesus at his weakest. And he still manages to do the right thing. Thank God. Thank God. We mentioned uh, Israel's march into Canaan to, to possess the land of promise. And they had gathered together on the, the, the side of the Jordan River, the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were going to pass across the Jordan River into the land that God had promised them. And we mentioned that this was actually a, a type of baptism that was going to take place for this nation of Israel that's on the brink of entering into the promise. And they, as they looked at this river, they were looking toward the west, across the river, and as they looked over on that western side, that was the promise. That was the promise. That was their future. This side that they were on represented their past. That's who they were at that time and who they had been. But as they looked across to the other side of the river, that was their future. That was who they were going to be. And so as they were able to pass through the Jordan River by a miracle, they left their past on the eastern shore, walked through the Jordan River to their future, and what happened? The waters covered it all up. Meaning, they were now separated from their past. And that's exactly what baptism does for us. It separates who we were from who we are now going to be. It separates our past from our future. All of their mistakes, all of their failures, that's their past. And what this tells us is we don't want our mistakes of the past to dictate our future. Because, see, that's what can happen. What is it that the enemy brings up to us He didn't want to talk to you about your future. He wants to talk to you about your past. Because he wants to still help you stay connected to your failures in the past because, you see, that also can dictate who you're going to become if you stay connected to that. And that's the importance of baptism because what it does is it separates us from the past. It breaks us free of that so that doesn't have to tell us anymore. That has no connection to who we are now. And who we're going to be. And so here they are. The promise of a a great future lays before them. And they entered into that land a different people. This time they went in to conquer. This time they said, we can take it. The first time they came there, they said, no, we we can't take the land. We can't get it. It, There's no way we can conquer it. This time it's all changed. 
This time it's all different. Passed through the waters. The past was left behind them, buried beneath the waters of the river. They did one more thing before this baptism was finalized. They took some stones from the Jordan River. They had a representative from each one of the tribes. They went out, grabbed a huge stone, drug it out, brought it over to the west side, their future. And once it was over there, Joshua built a memorial out of that, those stones that had been taken out of the river. And he said, this is for a memorial. This is for those times when our children from later generations are going to come up and they're going to say, what, what's the meaning of these stones? What, what is this, what's the purpose of these? And that's so that they can tell the kids, let me tell you what went on. Let me tell you who paid the price for you to get where you are today. And so then we move to Jesus. Jesus had gone to John the Baptist just prior to the starting of his ministry in order that John would baptize him. And up to this point in the life of Jesus, he'd been known as the son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth. That was his past. That's how everybody knew him. So he goes to John the Baptist and he passes through the Jordan River, is baptized in the Jordan River, indicating that who you knew me as before, it's not going to be determining who I am when I come up on the other side. You knew me as the carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph. When I come up on the other side, you're going to know me as something else. That's not going to be who you know me as. That's not going to be who I'm identified as anymore. That's changing. That's different. So he comes up out of the water and he passes over to this bank of the Jordan and something supernatural occurred. Just as these twelve stones had been taken out of the water and set up on the other side as a memorial, when Jesus comes up out of the water, there's a dove that descends from heaven and lights upon his shoulder, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the memorial that comes up out of the Jordan River. So that when anybody says, What does this mean? Like on the day of Pentecost? What's happening here, guys? What's going on? Let me tell you who had to pay the price in order for you to experience what you're experiencing today. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Thank God. Thank God. And then there's one more point that we want to make before we move on into a continuation of our study today. And that is the answer to the question... Why did Jesus only choose 12 disciples? Why did He choose 12? He could have chosen 3. He could have chosen 6. He could have chosen 40. Why did He choose 12? How many of you know there's a reason for everything that God does? It's, it's not happenstance. 
We may not understand it, we may not know what it is, but there's always a reason. He doesn't always tell us, but there is always a reason for what he does. How many sons did Jacob have? And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, correct? So the nation of Israel was birthed from twelve sons. This spiritual nation that Jesus is going to birth is going to be the result of His twelve spiritual sons and those who are going to come through them, through their testimonies. This nation that we are a part of today, this spiritual nation, this spiritual kingdom that we're a part of, came through those twelve men. We've got it because we've got their writings in the, in the Gospels and their letters that they've written and all these other things that they've done through their words, through their teachings. So we are the offspring, the spiritual offspring of those twelve men. <clears throat> I, I, I hope we can begin to see that in the life of Jesus Christ, there are situations that happened that validate for us the fact that Jesus was the spiritual fulfillment of the natural nation of Israel. He fulfilled the type that was represented by the nation of Israel. And He had been the one whom God had referred to, and not the nation of Israel itself, when He had spoken to Abram about a nation that would become a blessing to all peoples everywhere that would come through Him. Through Him. And if you'll also remember, there's a time when Jesus, talking to these spiritual religious guys again, and they're all puffed up because we are the children of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Jesus said, well, you may be related to him physically, but you're not his sons. You can call yourself that all you want to, but you're not his sons. Because if you were his spiritual sons, you would believe me. Because I'm the one that he was talking about. So just because it was a spiritual connection didn't make them, or a physical connection didn't make them spiritually connected. And it never was the case. You go back and you study the history of the nation of Israel. There was always a core group that remained true to God, spiritually connected. Those, those were the sons and the daughters. The other reprobates that had gone and, and, and gone after idolatry and, and, and left God, they were not sons of Abraham. They didn't follow him in faith. Again, this is always about spiritual. It's always about the spiritual concept and the spiritual connection. 
In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, I want to read that real quick. Because this pretty much solidifies and cements this whole concept of the things that we've been talking about, how that it was Jesus who represented the spiritual aspect, which is the more important part of it. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 16 It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, And to the seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. That's what Paul says. Paul is just saying here in this short sentence what it's taken me about three weeks to say. But he's telling us, you know what? It's not about the physical. It's always been about the spiritual connection. Always been about the spiritual connection. Not the physical nation. All right. Let's move on. Let's turn back here to Genesis chapter 12. We just have finished up here with God's establishment of this covenant with His chosen man, Abraham. And this fourth verse, we're going to read it here in just a second, this fourth verse picks up with the life of Abraham from that point of the covenant, and it moves forward from there. Okay, so let's read verse number 4 here, chapter 12, verse number 4. It says, So Abram departed... As the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So, the first part of this verse 4 reads, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. So I looked up the word that's translated here as departed, and it's the word yalak. We've talked about it before. And it's got a lot of different meanings, and several of which are similar. But one of the, the meanings that, that really stuck out to me, and that is the meaning of going forth again. Going forth again. So it could read that Abram went forth again. He went forth again. Going on, as the Lord had spoken unto him. And that word for spoken is the bar. And among the several meanings of that word is the word command. Command. And then we go on and connected to the word unto is the word that means to rush forth or to strive. And then next we come to the word him. And this was this was kind of interesting to me because when I looked up this word for him, it's the word ashar. And it means uprightness. Uprightness. And that's as in a wall that is standing upright and level. A wall that's upright and level. Straight. Straight. 
if we can put all of this together, that first part of verse number 4 might read like this. So Abram went forth again, as the Lord had commanded him to strive for uprightness. To move toward, to strive toward being upright. Being upright. Because you see, he had a purpose for Abram. And it wasn't just to go in and take land. Abram was going to be his ambassador. And if he was going to represent God to these heathen people... He needed to do it correctly. He needed to be upright in all of his dealings. Upright. Upstanding. In everything that he did. Because he needed to present the correct picture, the correct image. So here's God telling him to go forth again and to strive to be upright. Strive to be upright. Then the next part of that verse reads, And Lot went with him. And that word went is the same word that was translated before that we said meant went forth again. And then this word with is im and it means to accompany. But listen to this. To accompany but in a sense of being overshadowed by another so as to hide under. being overshadowed by another so you're basically hiding under their covering and then there's that word him again which means uprightness so if we put this all together we can see that this part of the verse would read and Lot went forth again accompanying Abram so as to be covered or hidden under his uprightness so here's Lot going forth again with Abram under the cover of his uprightness. Under the cover of Abram's uprightness. And then the last half of verse 4 says, And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And the word departed there is the word Yatsah, and it come... And it can mean to put away and to leave behind. To put away and to leave behind. And then there's the word out. That is the word mene. And it can mean out from among. Out from among. So if we put this last part of this verse together, it would read, And Abram was seventy and five years old when he put away and walked out from among Heron. Gee, that seems like he's done that before, doesn't it? Put away and walked out from among. So let's read this whole verse together with this expanded understanding. It says, So Abram went forth again, as the Lord had commanded him, to strive for uprightness. And Lot went forth again, accompanying Abram so as to be covered or hidden under his uprightness. 
And Abram was seventy and five years old when he put away and walked out from among Haran. Basically, it's saying the same thing, but it's expanded it just a little bit. Now, here's something that I found tragic when, when I read what this verse was telling us here. I, there was one thing that really, I don't know, it just it seemed tragic to me, and that was, here's Lot. He wants to continue on this journey, this spiritual adventure with his uncle, and he wants to be a part of this blessing that Abram's receiving. And so he's willing to hide under his uncle's covering of brightness because he realizes that as long as he stays close to his uncle, he's going to be blessed. He's going to be blessed. But you know what the name Lot itself means? A veil or a covering. That's what Lot was supposed to be. Lot was supposed to be a covering. But he's not living up to that. And when he should become the covering in his own right, he instead is found hiding under the mantle or the covering of another. And we're going to find out how that plays out for him later on down the road. It's never a good thing for us to try to hide ourselves under the covering of somebody else. Because when that happens, it never works out well. Things will go wrong. We're supposed to have our own covering. We're supposed to be covered by the Spirit of God for ourselves for ourselves and here is Lot who was supposed to be a covering himself and yet he didn't fulfill that ministry and it comes back to create problems for him later on So here we find in this, this, this fourth verse that our hero of faith, Abram, is once again in need of separating himself from and putting away from him, him his connections with another place. He'd had to do that in Ur when he first left stopped in Haran and stayed there long enough to where he started making connections, and now then he's got to sever all those ties all over again. It's like ripping a Band-Aid off an open wound. He's got to go through that process all over again. All over again. The same thing he'd already done once, now he's got to do it all over again. But what this indicates is that Abram had allowed himself to form a connection, a, a close tie with the city and with the people of Haran. Abram evidently had shifted his focus to Haran. That special mission that he had set out on had been put on the back burner. And most likely all the family was once again together in this place called Haran. 
Life was beginning to become normal again. And you really, who doesn't like normal once in a while? The older we get, we kind of like normal more. There's something about us as we, as we age a little bit. Um, adventure is okay once in a while, but we kind of like it to have. It's okay for a diversion, let's put it that way. Adventure is okay for a diversion, but we really like to live in normalcy. That's just who we are. And so, Abram, he, he's not a spring chicken. He's, you know, he's getting older. He's had his adventurous days, and he's okay. For diversion, it's okay, you know, to be adventurous. And he's had his diversion. He's gone from Ur to Haran, and that was his diversion, and it was okay. But he's had a chance now in Haran to return to something more normal. And he kind of likes it. Kind of ease into it. You kind of get a routine going, and you can deal with that. It's nice. But then we find out that Tira dies of his illness, which had evidently been plaguing him for some time and was the reason that they had decided to go to Haran. And so they've had time to fall back into this state of normalcy. And, and it's just likely that Abram and Sarai were no longer in a big hurry to pull up stakes, literally, because they had tents but to pull up their stakes and to set out again toward this place that they knew nothing about. Basically, return to their adventurous ways. And it just makes me believe that God had needed to visit Abram once again, just as He had done before Abram had set out from Ur. And it's possible that this patient God had once again needed to remind Abram of the covenant that had been instituted between them. And that was now even more urgent for Abram to set things in order and to continue on his quest for God. And the fact that what God had spoken about with Abram in Ur is now shared with us some five years later preceding Abram's departure from Haran, it causes me to feel strongly that that's the case, that that's the truth. He had already told Abram to leave Ur, and that's recorded for us here, but it's five years later that it's shared with us. Which lets me believe that he'd shared it once with him to get him out of Ur, but now he has to share it with him again to get him out of Haran. And I know, for you and me, he only has to tell us once, right? He only has to tell us one time, and it's okay. But for Abram, he's a little more stubborn than us, and it took God more than once talking to him to get him back on the track, get him back on the road again. No, the truth be known, God has to do the same thing with us, doesn't he? Sometimes it's more than twice. Sometimes it's a lot that he has to continue talking to us, urging us, prodding us a little bit, get back on track, to get back where we need to be. We're going to have to quit there for today. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great 
if God only had to tell us one time. If we could have that zeal so fired up in our hearts and our lives that He only had to say it one time to us and we got it and we wouldn't let it go. Let's pray today that God would help us fight our tendency toward normalcy and in some way to help us look for opportunities to be adventurous for Him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful today that You have a plan for everything.